Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and thank you for tuning in. We've got a great show this morning. First up, well, we've heard a lot about smart cities. They sound scary to me. I bet they sound a bit scary to you. So we're on a mission to find out what they are. And we thought we'd start with Corey Gray. He's the CEO of the Smart Cities Commission uh, based in Australia, but he zips all over the world talking smart cities. So we're going to interview him and find out what smart cities are and what the deal is about it. And we've got the wonderful Kathy Jamieson back. Remember her? She was the lady that had dug into the uh, adverse events database, both here and uh, in the United States, and had found three and a half thousand New Zealanders on the United States database. And we talked to her and the further revelations that she's uncovered. You're on Rally Check Radio. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening in. And please, please, please send me an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Send a text to 2057. Love hearing from you. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're joined by Corey Gray. Now, Corey... You're an Australian. I'm an Australian and a Maltese citizen, actually, for my oh, sins. From, so from Malta. That's right. I have the the curious, um, uh, what would I say, situation of being a member of one of the largest and most sparsely populated countries on earth, and one of the smallest and most densely populated countries on earth, which is an an interesting segue into the first principles of smart cities because. Um, 
each place is still trying to do the same things that we've always tried to do for citizens, but obviously have very different levers to pull and buttons to press. Yeah. So you are the CEO, the top dog of what is called the Smart Cities Commission. Smart Cities Council, yeah. Council. Now, yes. I'll tell you exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm your perfect target market for convincing because two things. I know nothing about smart cities or smart or the commission. Mm-hmm. Nothing. But yep. I'm highly skeptical. Yep. Just because of how it sounds. So what I want would like you to do is these things. Tell me what the council is. Tell me yep. how you got into it. And tell yep. me what a smart city is compared to a dumb one and mm-hmm. go. Yeah, so that's um, pretty simple starting at the beginning. Smart City Council, we're founded and based in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Um, founded there in 2012. I live in Australia but travel a lot. I'll be back to America on Sunday and then across to Europe uh, the following week and then into Asia again. Um, we're it would appear to be the largest organisation of our type in the world with about 400,000 people around the world directly and indirectly involved in what we do. And our mission's a simple one, which segues into your your second question. Um, We want to make a safer, more beautiful, enabled, resilient, sustainable and equitable world for everyone. It's really simple. Um, I struggle with the the jargonism and stigmatisation of smart city. Um, There are a lot of people who have tried to make it all about technology and data and realistically what we want as citizens and why I'm passionate about this and put all my time into, well, not all of it, but a significant amount into smart cities council. You know, I have seven kids, the smallest one that's heading towards me now and about to make a whole bunch of bunch of noise if she doesn't fall down the stairs first is that i want a better world for everyone and i want the relationships between people and the the only planet we have to live on to be strong and viable and sustainable it's that simple so it's it's not anyone is there anyone out there that doesn't want that that's my point so if people don't believe in the smart city movement as as i say if if you can find me people i was talking to a heads of local government today if you can find me people who don't want a safer community, who don't want a more beautiful community, who don't want a more enabled, more cost-effective, sustainable, resilient and inclusive community, um, then we have a bigger problem <laughs> than yeah, we face, but you, face at the moment, you've right? you sold me the sizzle. Yeah. I want to understand what the sausage is. So first yeah, also, up, first up, yeah. What is the Smart Cities Council? Mm-hmm. Who funds it? And what's its purpose? Oh, well, the, the purpose of Smart City Council is, as I've said in our mission statement uh, just a minute ago, we want to make that safer, more, more equitable, enabled, resilient, beautiful and um, sustainable world. That's really clear. Uh, we're a social impact organisation. We have operations, as I mentioned, in based in Washington, we have people in Texas, we have people in New York, um, around Australia and New Zealand, we have people in ASEAN, the subcontinent, we've just opened in Bangladesh, 
We're in Poland, Turkey. We've just opened in Ukraine and we're working with 580 mayors, the Mayors Club Ukraine and the Reconstruct Ukraine, Rebuild Ukraine organisation there to build a framework for post-war recovery. Um, we're in the UK. We're about to open in Switzerland and Mexico. So we have a global presence. Uh, so you're a big organisation. We have a big reach and a big influence. We try to operate lean because we are a social impact organisation. And and you sort of you ask the question about how we fund ourselves. We're ostensibly an organisation that relies on donations, government grants, memberships. Uh, we operate events. We have online education tools and planning and software tools and canvases that people use. So we operate as lean as we can. Um, we partner a lot. We work with a lot of universities that help What's us out. What's your annual budget, say? Our annual budget in terms of what? Money. Total money. What's your total expenditure in a year? Uh, it'd be less than $10 million. Okay. US. So we, as I say, we work, we work in kind with universities that provide us with premises. So we're not hiring hotels for a hundred grand. Okay. We're about to have a have an event in um, Scottsdale, Arizona, and they are providing all the facilities and events, and and then people. So there's will cover. a lot of a lot of donations in kind. Absolutely, that's what keeps us going. Like we have the beneficence of government and and the private sector to a point, but we're not a private sector advocacy advocacy group by any means. We are genuinely citizen and place focused. Have um, you? Have you got particular foundations or particularly donors or particular governments that are more significant or that are, um, give a lot or is it a whole lot of small bits? Uh, it's it's pretty well spread and truthfully I'd, I'd prefer to keep it that way because that democratises the organisation. I mean, I've only been running this for context for nine months. Mm-hmm. Although I've been around the organisation longer, my background has been over 30 years in private sector where I've founded different technology and solutions companies um, and I sit on the board still of four or five and a few different charities and sports organisations. So my my time is, is spent uh, evenly across sectors um, and, you know, there's a lot of other organisations where I get regularly asked you know, to join industry groups. And the first question is that you asked me is what's your mission and what's your purpose? And the second question is where's the value, right? And then who are you working with? How do I know it's an ethical organisation? How do I know you're acting in good faith and for good purpose? So when I came into this role, uh, which is a full-time role but an honorary role that I'm I'm pleased to occupy, um, they're the questions I wanted to know, you know, for me, where I'm at in my life and career, it's about making a difference for, as I said, society in place that's sustainable and and positive. So being forward-looking, you want an organisation that is democratised, not focused on the thoughts of a few people, not messianic, if you will, <laughs> like some organisations can be where people arrive at, you know, to the Oracle of Delphi to hear the, mm. the one and only true vision of the world, right? So... We want to be a living, vibrant global organisation that acts in the collective interests of all. Okay, and you you used a phrase to describe the council, and I I wasn't one I was familiar with. I'm sorry. You said it's was mm. it a social impact organisation? Correct. So now, that that yep. so what you're saying there, I guess, it's not for profit. So 
What does that mean, social impact? So are you familiar with the American term B Corporation? Nope. Okay. It effectively means that the corporate structure is the same as you might have for a for-profit, let's say, or a not-for-entity, but you have a charter or a mandate that everything you do and if you happen to make money would go back into reinvest into the key targets and objectives that we have, whether they're through projects, whether they're through our global charity partners or what have you. So we spent a lot of time coming up with that structure when the organisation came across to us. So, so for background, Smart Cities Council during COVID, you can imagine being an events and a, a membership organisation, a lot of discretionary spending and all of that stocks. Um, so one of my companies and my myself personally made sure that Smart Cities um, could make it through that period and it's been restructured now to have an operating model. On, took a lot of advice from the, the CEO of a charity out of New York that that I chair called EB Research Partnership. And we said, look, anything like this, you want to be accountable, not how much to how much money you raise every year. Lots of charities raise a lot of money and then waste it on high salaries and don't get any impact, right? Getting a cure to EB in, in the case of that charity or cancer or motor neuron disease isn't solely about how much money you raise. It's about what you do with that money, and then it's about how many people benefit and to what extent from that money. So we set up a charter that holds ourselves to account by impact. How many homeless people find homes? How many kids get into schools? How much plastic gets out of the ocean? How much carbon comes out of the atmosphere? Got it. I see. I I, I apologise for not knowing that. No, no, that's and- fine. I mean, it's it's a fairly new and innovative sort of way of thinking but Mm. you know lots of charities benchmark themselves to how much money they raise and then go Mm. and you know only 60 cents in the dollar gets through to people who need the money and we we have a baseline where effectively i personally guarantee the operating cost every year of the organization so other people's money goes straight through to doing things that matter wow so you're really committed and you said your position was an honorary one yeah i don't get paid to do my job well, you're the definition of a true believer in that sense. You're a volunteer. Absolutely. I think it's the single most significant way that in the time I still have on this planet that I can make a meaningful difference to people and the planet we live on. Well, that's very admirable. Now, I'm a bit gobsmacked by that. Good on you. Now, tell me this. Explain to me. You'll be familiar with Auckland. Yes. I was there that's, not long ago. That's our big city. Yes. What would you you do to make Auckland a smart city? Huh. So Auckland's an interesting one. And just just for background, I had the, the the curious historical anomaly of having lived in Christchurch for a year in 1976 when my dad was a schoolmaster at a school over here and got taken over to teach rugby players at Christ College how to kick <laughs> because he was an Australian rules footballer. And I I met Richard Hadley, which still might be the, the, the highlight of my life, and I also lived in a city that had exactly the same plan as Adelaide where I live in Australia because yes. Colonel William Light designed them both. I'm, so happy to, I'm happy if you'd prefer to make Christchurch smart and what that would involve. <laughs> No, 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 it's right, because the, the question doesn't change with the city, right? Um, 
people Auckland is an interesting one in the context of New Zealand perhaps you think about Dublin in the context of Ireland which I spent a lot of time in Dublin or maybe Copenhagen they're countries that are fairly spread four four and a half million people roughly or more than a quarter of them live in one place right um, yep. one main city Dublin Copenhagen or, or Auckland so typically the challenges for a city like Auckland are and and for context, my behave, my background is more in behavioural science and, and group dynamics, although I'm a technologist as well, around blending cultures. And Auckland is, you know, in, in many ways a cultural uh, melting pot. Dublin, not so much, although the Polish are arriving in the Eastern Europeans much more significantly. So there are issues of, of cultural amelioration. There are the, the typical issues of pressure on transport. I saw that the new bridge in Auckland has just been um in principle approved across uh, the bay there which is great i know that there's like rail planned i know there's a north south rail link so transportation is is critical um and then obviously people affordability is the other thing keeping big you know more concentrated cities affordable for people uh is fundamental because if if no one can afford them then no one's going to live in them and no one's going to get any benefit right Connectivity to regional communities to me is really, really important when you have a high uh, population concentration in a country like New Zealand. How easily can people come and go? I was talking with the municipality of Istanbul this morning where they have a very different challenge. They have 18 million people, um, spiralling cost of living, um, critical limits on data, water, waste management, transport. And the discussion there is, how to get people into a position where they can go back and live where they came from. Mm. The solution to Istanbul isn't how do we get it to 30 million people, it's how do we get it back to 10. Because mm. if you spend a dollar in a regional community compared with a city that's at its limit, you'll probably get three times as much value. People we know perform better socially and in terms of well-being indices if they live near to their families, their friends, um, their place, particularly in the case of Indigenous people. So the solution isn't just how do I scale, build faster internet and 5G and all of that stuff. It's a it's a very complex socioeconomic, environmental, um, human behavioural uh, discussion to have. So that's a circumlocutus way to saying um, Auckland still needs to be able to scale, but it needs to be able to connect people to regional communities so it's viable to do jobs remotely for people to live where they've come from, to manage people's cultural and societal and familial backgrounds and also to take pressure off the environment and to manage things in a cost-effective way. I think, you know, you've seen that the spent the expenditure about to be undertaken in New Zealand and it's probably front of mind at the moment with an election coming up is at an historic high, right, on, on mm-hmm. major infrastructure. Um, it's not dissimilar anywhere else, but putting a focus on well-being and working backwards is is the critical approach as far as I'm concerned, whether you're Istanbul or Auckland uh, or Christchurch. You you just apply those same principles in a different way with a slightly different set of tools. So back to my question, uh, lofty goals, Mm -hmm. how do you achieve that for Auckland? What do you do for Auckland? How does Auckland look different? How does it be different? To achieve those goals, um, 
it is a it is a slightly complex. Well, there there are there's more than one competing contributing factor to that. So, uh, as an example, what we're doing at the moment is working with New Zealand and Queensland governments on a infrastructure transport uh, summit that includes City of Auckland, Auckland Airport. We're hosting an event on the first of August. Um, if you want to come along in Auckland, that'll advance. Um, how and where that money's spent. What are what are we doing? We're working on how organisations, particularly government, need to change their structure to be more effective in a new technology world. Um, there's not a big tech agenda going on out in, out in this part of the world. I know that there's been a lot of um, uh, scepticism, let us say, healthy scepticism around the role of uh, hyperscalers, you know, the Googles and the AWSs and the Microsofts and so on in this area about the integrity of people's data and what it's being used for and how it's being used. Um, but building capability and capacity and collaboration is is really the secret to success. Like, as we said, Auckland does have issues of being globally remote, has issues of how people get in and out of it, has issues of general congestion you know there's enablement at the airport that's starting and will be ongoing and as i said through light rail and other rail and road infrastructure um but there's a whole role in terms of different um economic uh models to make cities auckland being just the example we're talking about now more viable and and cost effective see, and livable you see to me um with Auckland, the plan is, since the 1960s, this is me speaking and I'll be blunt, mm. the planners have destroyed it because they had a plan in the early 60s to build a proper motorway system. Mm. They decided they didn't want to have a motorway system they decided that they would build, they had some phrase for it, I can't forget. It, was, it wasn't smart city, but it was something like that. And they put a ring around it, mm. wouldn't allow development. They said, we're going to have light rail and trains and intensify. Mm -hmm. They drove up land prices. So unless you're born into a family that owns a house in Auckland, you're going to be renting for the rest of your life if you live there. You're, the home ownership now is totally unavailable to an Aucklander. If you can afford to rent, by the way. Yes. And um, the land outside that circle is as cheap as chips. Mm -hmm. Then to do anything in Auckland, the planning regulations drain your blood and treasure. <laughs> yeah, because you got so many bloody hoops to mm. climb through, and then successive governments come along with infrastructure plans that is, you know, the latest bright and shiny thing for politicians to get elected on, fail to deliver them, and Auckland crumbles under the weight of people traffic. And to me, looking at it, we'd be better 
to back government out of it and allow property rights and human ingenuity and the human spirit to have a go. And so I don't jump on board concepts and working with government because I've seen what that's done to Auckland with the best and loftiest of goals. I've also become highly sceptical of government working in partnership with the private sector because it seems to me that's sort of like the Googles and the Amazons and whoever getting a leg up and squeezing out the next round of entrepreneurs. Do you see my point? Yeah, yeah, and I'm in, in, in the majority I would agree with you. So to speak to a couple of things, the challenges that our organisation at least and organisations like ours are trying to deal with is really seven getting on to eight generations since the Industrial Revolution with a huge amount of momentum in a certain direction that the majority of people accept um, the very few, <laughs> and I had the uh, the interesting opportunity to meet Ted Cruz at the White House last month, who's one of these very uh, vociferous um, uh, climate-denying uh, type red Americans. Um, just, even, I should he, say, yeah, he's just like me. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got snakeskin boots? No, but I wish I had a pair. Yeah, yeah. So even if for some reason people choose not to believe about carbon in the atmosphere, we can see a world that has far more people on it. We can see a world that has far more poverty in it. You've just described it. Far less equity in it. Uh, far more shit in the ocean. Far more shit in the atmosphere, right? That's that's undeniable even by the most... Um, forthright climate change tonight, right? I'm interested in this planet overall, and I think like most politics where both parties 99% agree and spend 99% um, of their time arguing over the 1%, yeah. what we want to do is start with the common 99% and move forward on that, right? Not, not nuanced, longitudinal uh, climate studies where someone's arguing over what degree or percentage of, of overall atmospheric temperature increase we've seen or how you model the rise in sea levels, right? We want kids in schools. We want we don't want our streets full of rubbish. We don't want people homeless. We don't want living to be unaffordable. Um, you want all these good things, Corey. I'm struggling yes. to understand how you deliver them. We work with a lot of different organisations that have a high level of capability. Um the reason that we're focused down on government, right, and people say this all the time, well, government's impossible to change. We, as citizens, we don't want a government that takes all of our, and I can tell you now because I go to a lot of countries where this happens, I'll be in Sri Lanka in two weeks where it's it's a tragedy, we don't want our governments moving fast and loose with our money as taxpayers. To a, to a fault, governments tend to move slower in stable countries like ours but I promise you it's a whole lot better than the alternative, right? What's going on in Sri Lanka is is an absolute tragedy. What's going on with the re-election of Erdogan in Turkey? And I don't want no, to get I too get all political. That. I get all that. But, but we need to work with government. Govern yeah, we're not going so to you're working, with a situation you're working with where the, government you're, disappears. Yeah, you're working with the New Zealand government and the Auckland Council and other councils here. To what end? To make the rubbish get picked up? 
and make housing affordable. And my question to you is lovely and good on you, but I'm struggling to understand what's different with saying we're going to have smart cities compared to what we've got now. All I've got is smart cities. Well, it's got to be good because who wants to live in a dumb city? And we all agree we want a nice, clean environment and to be able to afford things and our kids mm -hmm. in school and the streets clean. How do you deliver? How, how, what is it that delivers so, that? Yeah. So our, our function is to deliver not just white papers and blogs, but to deliver tangible tools, playbooks, new contractual models, de-risked, data-driven, sometimes technology-enabled solutions that can do things better and more efficiently than we've been able to do them in the past. Okay. So it's a technological solutions and the use of modern data analysis and technology making up tools that can be used by, I'm guessing, central and local government and, yep. and you know, providers of services yep. to deliver a better result. And what I'm getting at this a bit, I think, Corey, and what mm. you're seeing is the opportunities have moved very fast with technology yes. and data that councils and governments and, and businesses are slow to work together on to the benefit of the citizenry. So, yeah, we have a unique set of tools now. Like, you know, to the, when when cars came in in the 1890s in the US and around the world, you know, the biggest anti-car people were the people who used to shovel horseshit in New York who thought they were going to lose a job, right? Yeah. And then everyone said, oh, I'm not going to sit on a sustained explosion. It's not safe. And then after about five years, people worked out that more people get killed getting bucked off horses than they do in cars, right? All we're doing, like this call we're having now, right, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had a call like this. Never. All that we're doing is saying, how can we responsibly and ethically use data and technology to deliver those outcomes? Okay. So our, our role is to facilitate the use of that, that um, technology and data to make things better for people and the places where they live. Now, now I get it. Sorry, yeah. I get it now. So yeah. it's this idea that we have unimagined abilities to connect the world, to connect each other, yep. to take advantage of data, all, you know, at a billionth of a second. Mm -hmm. And how can we best use that to good effect? Absolutely. And, and, and I'd labour the point in a responsible and ethical way. I think people have started to be talking about chat GPT and artificial intelligence, for example. Um, whenever you get quantum leaps in technology, and I use th three examples, that you need to form an ethical framework about it, which is something we're very committed to. So when Oppenheimer first set a bomb off in the desert um, in the US, a nuclear bomb, after that it took, let me get this right, 24 years before the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was formed, right? when people realise this is just so big that it can change the planet in a very horrible way that was never anticipated. When we mapped the human genome, we had to do the same. As soon as you could start cloning yourself and your children, right, we needed to form an ethical framework. 
And now with the powers of artificial intelligence, we're facing a similar ethical conundrum that's being addressed by the world at the moment. And we're involved in that discussion and we're involved in the discussion about what good can be done just Mm. as much as what bad might be might might happen as well so and uh, sharing that information is important and the interesting thing is that this is happening right now anyway but without the conversation yeah and it's something you know i i like to think we work in a pyramid not like a not not like a maslow's hierarchy pyramid but at the top you've got governments that traditionally if you think about things like cyber stalking and dark web that came out when you know the internet proliferated right there was no legislation to stop people stalking online and um all sorts of horrible pornography and other information exchange right so governments traditionally lag technology in terms of policy and legislation and then public awareness right the other thing that governments tend to do is act completely independent of other governments so if you look at regulations, you know, in New Zealand, you drive on the left like we do here. In Europe, we drive on the right. One computer has one sort of port to it. One's got a different sort of port. What we're trying to do as an organisation acting globally is be an aggregation of knowledge and and of collective best practice that we can then share and enable people to make better decisions sooner on a collective uh, and democratised basis that can, again, at a policy level this time, not at a technology and widget level, provide better outcomes to citizens. And that can be around legislative frameworks for ethical artificial intelligence, for example. Mm. Um, And you're a clearinghouse, I'm guessing, for best practice around the world. That's what we are told we are and aspire to be more of and better at, yes. Mm. So what's... The best or an example of your favorite or best technological tool that you're offering up to Auckland or Christchurch or Istanbul. What what's the sort of tool and uh toolbox that you would have that you think this is cool, this will make a difference? What would be an exa- an example? There's there's a couple of different lines of inquiry on that and I guess for complete clarity, we 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 don't offer up tools or solutions. We we create a forum where people like Auckland can offer up their problems or opportunities, and other people can help find those okay. solutions. Right? So, yeah. Um, it's strange. There's, there's a few different levels. As I say, if at, a, at a technological level, there's really basic stuff like intelligent street lighting that will make for a safer environment, save energy, reduce maintenance costs. That's really an easy one to get over the line. If you go to a rate payer and say, we want to make an investment that's going to reduce your rates, they'll say that's a good idea and keep you safer, right? That's a really easy traditional business case to So offer. what would intelligent lighting look like, just to give us a feel? Uh, intelligent lighting is simply controllable lighting that you can dim up and down that comes on only when it's a certain threshold of dark and goes off uh, when it's a certain um, level of brightness. Um, where you can change even the colour of it if there's an emergency, so you can go from a warmer type light to a, a brighter white light if there's been a car accident on a highway, for example, where lights will dim down if the highway is not being used to save energy. 
um, where they'll tell you how many hours that a fixture is operated or if it's under warranty so you can reduce that sort of embedded um, exposure cost. That's okay. intelligent lighting. Intelligent waste management, you know, where you can monitor bins, help people sort recyclables from general waste more accurately. 60% of waste still gets put in the wrong bin. You can then compress rubbish in bins so you can get 10 times as much in a bin. You can then have predictive service cycles for public waste that reduce overflow and reduce traffic in the street. These are, you know, positive and tangible changes that you can that you can use. You can then, with surveillance cameras, not just look for baddies doing bad things, but you can monitor pedestrians, bikes, cars, trucks, buses, and get a better understanding and give data to planners, to your point earlier, about what's really happening in a city in real time rather than what they think might be happening based on aged and and flawed data that's been gathered by individuals with pens and paper, right? Mm. How are people so, really using our cities? Are they if we've just spent a million dollars putting a new playground in? Are people using it? Um, where are those people coming from? Are they just local people? Are they coming across town? How long do they stay? How regularly do, do, do they come back? So you can start to plan with a lot better accuracy and make more informed investment decisions over time with that sort of information. Just hold it there, Corey. And and the funny way that's happening now with, you know, smartphones and whatnot, but we as people and as citizens, even though it's happened, happening, and is going to continue to happen, we're also scared of it aren't we? Because like I think I'm off to the I'm off to the playground with my kids and I sort of have that um sort of sky fi movie, you know, there's a camera <laughs> watching me play with my kids, um saying, is this guy safe? Or or I think he's overdone it. He's gonna have a heart attack or where's he come from? Because we need this for planning purposes. There's a level of big brother watching me and intrusion on my privacy of playing with my kids at the playground that we don't feel comfortable with, isn't there? Well, that's why I talked earlier about the ethical use of technology. In in Europe, the, the general data protection regulations, the GDPR, mean that any camera needs to redact the faces of everybody it's filming, right? You're not allowed to record people's faces. I don't know how familiar you are with the GDPR, but it's probably the most rigorous data protection and privacy standard in the world at the moment. What needs to happen is at the bottom of this pyramid I spoke about before that there is more general awareness. Like one thing that makes me laugh is people who go on social media all the time and spread um, um, conspiracy theories about social media. If you believe them, don't be on social media. Mm. Get rid of your phone and stop using it, right? No, I, I so don't care. People either believe that the value is greater than the risk or the inconvenience, or they don't. But what we do want to have as citizens is confidence in our laws and, and regulations that they're not only written well but enforced properly that do protect privacy as we collectively believe it to be fit. Because in a funny way, you can monitor. I'm being monitored on my phone everywhere I go. I don't know who accesses to that particular data, but, you know, it's possible, right? Correct. Um, um, and I don't know what sort of framework's governing that, but it's an interesting observation nonetheless 
that if there's a camera looking at me, I think, oh, I'm not, you know, if I was down at the beach and there's a camera, a uh, playground, there's a camera, it's the image that it conjures up of a movie. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss your work. I'm trying to raise a concern that people have. And we feel as though almost we, it's going to happen. We can't stop it. This technology is propounding along, but it's not how we grew up. And I know yeah. you're saying it's like, well, cars came along and replaced horses. But um, it, you know, this is part of the challenge of our future, isn't it? It always has been. Like, I, I constantly say to people, since we worked out how to grow maize in the Tigris-Euphrates Delta in Mesopotamia and set up the first buildings, proper buildings, and started living in societies, we've just wanted to do what we still wanted to today, which is go back to making safe, beautiful, sustainable, resilient and equitable communities, right? Mm. So our question needs to be not what tech are we buying, but what problem are we trying to solve for and can we solve for it safely? The very first word in everything we do is safely, and that includes the safety of people's privacy and their data, right? It includes all aspects of safety, not just their physical person, their property, but all aspects of their safety. So there needs to be a fundamental basis for any new solution that's adopted, whether it's cars from horses or or computers or internet banking, you know, you, you would remember there was a huge level of anxiety over internet banking when it came in, right? Huge level. Oh, I remember a huge level of anxiety about um, cash machines and credit cards. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So as society, we just need to form a collective view about what safe is in all of its different manifestations, whether it's privacy, data protection, um, autonomous vehicles crashing or not crashing, we form a view and then I would hope act collectively uh, in the best interest of our communities, acknowledging all of the inconveniences. I think was it Churchill who said that democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others. Mm -hmm. But there's inherent impediments in it and checks and balances that slow it down and make it in, 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 inherently imperfect, right? Mm. But it's the best outcome that we have or the best process we have at the moment. Um, what are some of the more, you said they were the basic things, you know, the yep. lighting, the rubbish, the planning with the playgrounds, mm -hmm. and I can follow that. Yeah. What are the more sophisticated things that you're looking at? Um, some of the things you mentioned, I mean, my, my personal interest in societies, and, and again, I go back to saying that the sooner people stop using the term smart cities and just focus back on cities and citizens, the better in my view. Mm -hmm. because of the stigma around it, but understanding well-being. Um, there's there's a, a real view of what a 15-minute city is, and then there's a conspiracy view, right? A 15-minute city should be one where you can access all critical services by foot or by bike in 15 minutes. Hospitals, schools, shops, doctors, whatever it is, you know, sports facilities, whatever you need. Then there's the alternate view, which is governments are using 5G and tracking you through COVID vaccines to control people's movements, right, which is that very Orwellian or Hunger Games in 21st century terminology view of the world. Um, I'm interested in the way we can use data and analytics now to understand well-being. Are people moving more efficiently? Um, are people visiting public art or community events or being more active um, 
or these are the things using their cars less and walking more. These are the things that are interesting to me. And in general, you can also analyze things like public sentiment through social media to determine over time the general level of change in people's positivity about the places where they're living. Um, you can gamify sustainability. Um, what does that mean? Uh, before I was in this role, I was working in advisory around smart cities and in Western Sydney, there's an area where they're building nine apartment towers and people can now, will be able to compete between apartment towers for how much they reduce their waste output, their water consumption, their power consumption and benefit in terms of reduced body corporate fees and potentially rates, right? So there's mm -hmm. ways that you can use data, I think, in really, really uh, positive ways. But again, it needs to have an ethical framework that that data is secured and used appropriately. The, the huge opportunity for data is when you aggregate it and you can analyse it collectively. And there's a huge risk of centralising data is that you have a single point of failure. And we need to be incredibly mindful of that. The interesting thing, Corey, is, isn't it, is that whether I like it or not, and whether our listeners like it or not, this data is out there now, and it's being used now by all sorts, right? You can buy the data. Of yeah, although there's a, there's a lot better checks and balances on that, and at least now you need to give consent for your data to be sold. But yeah. I think a lot of people don't read the terms and conditions of things that no. they check the box on because they want to share photos of their dogs and cats on Instagram, yeah. right? Yeah. If you go to someone's Instagram profile, you know what sort of restaurants they eat at, you know what sort of um, people they hang around with, you know where they travel and don't travel, you know what sort of money they must have, what cars they drive, where they – you know so much about somebody who voluntarily puts that online, right? Yes. Um. It's terrifying the stuff that I see people put online. It's yes. to me, it's some of it's just utterly crazy, right? Yes. Um, you know what shops they like. You know what sports teams they follow. You know where they work. You know who their colleagues are. Um, and we particularly do it to kids. Well, kids, kids, kids do, kids do well at well at school, and suddenly they're they're on Facebook and forever searchable. Yeah, that's right, and there's. As you know, there's information being out there nearly 20 years now on people. Mm. But then people look at it and say with Facebook, even when there was a big turn against Meta after the um, Cambridge Analytics scenario, people look at it and say, oh, I've got 15 years of all my wedding anniversaries and children's birthdays and school graduations and all my photos and posts. I don't think I'm going to shut that down, right? No. And delete that data. So these are the decisions people make. You know, the most dangerous thing you can do as a human being is drive a car on a road. That is the single most likely way to kill yourself, right, or be in one. And yet every day we have a convention where we agree to do it, we take out third-party insurance and we go out and drive a car. Yeah. And that's the decision people have got to make with data and privacy. Where's the and, benefit and where's the risk? And, and I'm we're all making that decision to varying degrees. Yep. Because even if I'm living in the woods, chances are, you know, I'll be logging on. Now, yeah, right. and what you're saying is we can gamify, uh, we can plan better, we can check on people's well-being using this data mm -hmm. and therefore make better decisions. Click and let people ultimately make more informed decisions for themselves, yeah. 
So if you think about something I'm passionate about, which is aged care, right? Okay, uh, let's I've do worked that. a lot in fire safety and aged care. So at the moment, the elephant in the room in the aged care industry is the average life expectancy of somebody in, in Australia, at least, who is admitted to a full care facility is 18 months, right? It's a scandal. The economic model is designed to turn people over quicker, just like a restaurant wants three table sittings instead of two, right? Yep. There's really yep. bad things about that. So if we can keep an aging population at home longer, so let's assume you're retired, you're being, let's be theoretical, right? And you've retired with $2 million and you're 70 years old, right? Yeah. If you could spend a million of that and stay in your house till you're 90 instead of going to an aged care facility for 18 months and die, where you can have the water in your shower monitored to be the right temperature, the air conditioning monitored, your children and people who care about you can know if that you've been up and had breakfast and, you know, gone out on your on your lunch with your friends that you were planning to do, that the water hasn't been running for three days, that you're not lying down with a broken hip. A good friend of mine, his dad died during COVID. He had a, a mild stroke but collapsed and he was at home alone, right, in Sydney and and lay there four days unable to move till he died, right? Jeepers. Like it's about one of the most horrific ways you could think of dying apart from being burned to death or oh, eaten and by to have that happen dogs. to have that happen to your own father. That would be dreadful. So, so if we can use a little bit of data that's not filming you in the shower, it's not yeah. filming you lying in bed, but it knows that you're getting up and moving around and, and you, you, your caregivers and your power of attorney or whatever it is knows that you've had a shower and had lunch and been for a walk and come home and turned on the lights and turned off the lights and watched TV and you're living your life and you can stay at home instead of being institutionalised, I think that's a win, right? It's a win. So uh, I'm getting I'm getting this clearer now, Corey, because what you're saying in that example, like I love a smart home. You know, hmm. I'm I'm the world's worst because I've got Googles and Alexas and I love yeah. coming in and telling things to start and keeping an eye on the kids. And I know where my kids are because I track them. And I don't regard that as surveillance. I regard that as being a good parent using mm. technology to keep my children safe. And if anything happened to them, they could contact me and I would know. Yes. And you're saying that you take the aged care one, we could be doing that for our aged mums and dads when we're in another city or across town rather than saying, oh, God, something could happen to them. Rather than shuffle them into the old rest home, we could keep yeah. them at home because we can keep an eye on them and they can be in contact with us 24-7 essentially. And that yeah, be, that's not something we should be afraid of. That's an opportunity that we have. We just need to make a moral framework that we're happy about for all participants, and then off we go. Yeah. Whether it's children, whether it's our parents. You know, if suddenly I was talking with someone earlier today who found out just before she died that his mother had been sold four prepaid funeral plans, right, because she had dementia. So if you can... You know, in a, in an agreed way, even see there goes another ten grand. There goes another ten grand. There goes another ten grand. You sort of check in and just say, "You're right, Mum." You know, <laughs> what's going on? Jeepers, jeepers, creepers. Um, and that doesn't involve 
government is in that instance only setting up the framework for that to happen. It's not involved in the monitoring, right? Yeah, correct. And then people use it how they want. It's a platform. It's like a road. You can decide to speed or not speed, right? Yeah. Um, you can decide to drink drive or not drink drive. You can use it responsibly or irresponsibly. But what we do then is we set up, we provide the infrastructure and then we set the rules around it, right? This is how fast you have to drive here. You give way to the right. Um, you can turn left on a red signal. Whatever the rules are that we agree, right? They're the rules. And a smart city as a city, because I'll, I'll wrap this up for you because I realise that we've had a hiccup. A smart city is a city that's saying, look, we have this extraordinary technology, we have extraordinary data handling, we have extraordinary ability to interconnect. It's giving people extraordinary opportunities to do things never before imagined. But it's also dangerous, like any new technology, and it can be misused and it can be used in ways we're not comfortable. So what we need to be doing is thinking about this with a legal and administrative framework that everyone is comfortable with and can have an assurity with. So, yes, you can monitor your kids, but no, pedophiles can't get in there, right? That sort of business. Yes, we can monitor my aged mother to see that she's okay and she and I can talk and I can check on her, even though she's in Auckland and I'm in central Otago, but um, she's protected by the system. That's what you're saying. Yeah, correct. We, we, what worries me about the smart city discussion is people when people only talk about the technology and not what they're doing with it, right? Because yeah. then you don't, then you lose that ethical framework. Lots of people are putting smart devices out in the field. One of the funniest examples is a temperature thermometer in a casino in the United States where someone hacked all the high roller data because they connected it to their server, right? And it had no data protection. So we've just got to set the right rules around how we... That is amazing. So yeah. someone goes into a casino and says, I'll give you this temperature monitoring thing so it can run your AC better. Well, it goes in. It went in a tropical fish tank. It was monitoring the water temperature. No. No, I'm serious. So these are the things where we need to be sort of clear about what what we accept morally as citizens, what benefits we want, what risks we see. And then, you know, trust but verify is what I would say, typically. <laughs> and have an ongoing process of, of, of self-analysis and review over all of that. If people listening want to find a couple of things, first, how to learn more about what you're about on Smart Cities, how do they do that? Uh, best would be website, which is www.smartcitiescouncil.com. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if they want to protect themselves, be wary of these risks, they have concerns, concerns about kids, concerned about aged parents and technology. I was constantly worried about my poor mother. Um, mm. towards the end. I mean, every 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 son and daughter is. What's their best way of having them or helping them with this technology, which can be such a boon, and then 
such a risk? It's an interesting one. We're about to... So most of our activity are directed through what we call task forces, which are designed to have tangible, um, implementable outcomes, right? So one of well, two upcoming task forces, one is about remote and Indigenous communities where there's mm-hmm. a huge social and digital equity divide and the other one is digital equity for the ageing community. So we're in 2024 looking to release a position paper and a series of actionable outcomes around how to enable digital equity for our ageing community. It was it was an interesting but frustrating point during COVID after people were isolated and people could go back to sports events, for example, that the number of elderly people attending fell dramatically because it was all paperless entry now. It was all QR codes on phones and um, it was zero touch entry to us to go and see their football team that they'd followed forever, right, or their cricket team. So aged people who didn't have mobile phones couldn't do that. You know, if you needed to show your MyGov ID, for example, to show that you're vaccinated, it only comes in an app. How do you do that? You know, so... There's a whole series of issues to be raised that need better attention that we've we've identified and are just starting to sift through as an organisation and want to make part of public engagement in 2024. My mother's elderly friend um, said to us they were rolling out fibre and it was a huge kerfuffle for the elderly mm. people to be shifted onto fibre. And she said to me, why can't they just wait till all the old people die and then do it? <laughs> well, they're trying to kill them. That's why. <laughs> they're and, trying, to, uh, trying to drive them to the edge of the cliff. That's well, what Corey, it is. Well, uh, Corey, you're a very busy guy with seven children and you're a very busy guy with what you do. And so I appreciate you sharing this time for us, particularly because we had a hiccup in time zones and I put you to some some uh, awkwardness. So I will let you go there, but I have to say I appreciate you. I still struggle to get my head around quite what it all is. And um, if you ever, I'll talk to Robin, and if we ever have an opportunity to get further explanation and it works for you, we've got a large number of listeners who are interested, uh, please, um, we'll be back. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you for that. No, no, I appreciate you reaching out and ha- happy to talk more. And, I mean, the value of these sorts of um, conversations is if we do over time get to what is the nub, there's no communicating isn't standing on a hill and yelling out. It's when you've said something mm-hmm. that makes sense and people have heard it and you know that they have understood it. So we're not here, here to be we right. We're here to communicate and we and go. we're here to, here to help. So appreciate here your we time go. as well. There's Corey Gray from the Smart Cities Council. Worldwide organization. He heats it up and he does it voluntarily, even underwrites its operation. And he's doing that so we, the people, can take better, make better use of data in a way. And while I struggled at the start to get it, I think there towards the end I was starting to get glimly aware. But this is my dimness. But we're very lucky to have Corey along. So thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but... 
practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text, 2057, or an email at inbox at I have so many wonderful guests on my show, and I get such a lot of feedback from listeners, so please keep it coming. But one guest knocked it out of the park, and she has a standing invitation that if she's got anything to say, let me know, and we'll put her on immediately. And that, of course, is the very wonderful, the very smart, the amazing, absolutely amazing Kathy Jamieson. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Rodney. I didn't know what to make of you when I first had you on my show. I didn't know whether you were a genius or a little bit nutty. Because you were sort <laughs> of doing you both. You were doing this sort of amazing research and insight and I thought how could this be possible and I had you on the show and you blew me away now I'm not a genius it's it I am tenacious I am well, tenacious. maybe that's it and I am a, a mother and you know my children were um coerced to do something that I I, I didn't want them to do I really didn't want them to do and so that was motivation enough for me. Well, remember last interview, we, you provided us with your analysis on the CALM reporting and the fact that you'd found 3,500 Kiwis on the American Bears reporting system which gave you batch numbers and dates and times and all sorts of extra information. And it was, to me and to listeners, an absolute revelation. And I... I I'll just go... I, I, it doesn't give you batch numbers. Oh, um, sorry. However... There, if somebody does want to know their batch number and they didn't get it at the time, there is an OIA out there which lists down to pharmacy level or vaccination centre level what batches went where when. Uh-huh. So just as a little bit of an aside, if anyone does want to know that and they don't know it, 
that's how they can find out. Because I thought the v, the American system had batch numbers on it. It, 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 some of it does, um, okay. but only if um, the reporter has reported it themselves when they um, have made the report. The, okay. the American system, but it, it has the difference. The big difference there: it has the date the person was injected, and the date they started getting symptoms, and the date they had their major event. Those are the bits that I'm really interested in because that can be studied. So already we're learning stuff. Can I, I can see the wonderful Kathy, but I'm going to ask you to switch your video off because we're just getting a bit of a bleep, a lag. So there we go. Now, tell me the significance of the batch that you got and tell us again how you discover what batch you got if you got jabbed in New Zealand. Well, there is an OIA and I haven't, I wasn't sort of coming prepared to talk about Sorry. that. So yeah. I, might have to, I might have to give you that um, later yeah. so that you can tell people. But there is a, an OIA out there that somebody's asked for that says um, by batch number, please show us, you know, what went to each vaccination centre. So it, it'll be down to, you know, Life Pharmacy, you know, somewhere. In. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. so and, and New Zealand seems to have got quite large batches. So um, it's not a very complicated table. You know, you could look at it and, like, I know people that were sort of injected months apart in the in the town that I'm in, and they would have got the same one, the same batch. Great. So they could, if you're stuck and you want it, just email me or text me, and we will sort that out for you. And what's the significance of the batch that you received? Well, because you know, even even the FDA, when they give their um, give their authorization, seem to be quite concerned about um, scaling up the manufacturing and consistency across the batches. So, for example, you know, people will often say when they're defending the vaccine program, you know, this doesn't have emergency use authorization in the states anymore. It's been given full license yet, but that's not quite it's not quite as simple as that um com com however you say it comrenati has been given full license yeah but the pfizer vaccine um biotech vaccine in the states hasn't now the full licensure product has to have come out of certain manufacturing sites because they must be confident of the um manufacturing process in those places so so different batches seem to be giving people different um you know levels of you know there seem to be certain batches that are associated with more injuries yes and there's a thought that that could be the manufacturing process and then there are manufacturing processes that haven't been given full license so that the it's if you're it is significant which batch you got, and it may explain why some people are fine and others aren't. 
is essentially the point, is it? Okay. That's right. Now, I should tell listeners that Kathy sent me through what she's put together as notes. And I was busily reading it. And you think you're beyond shock. <laughs> and I was so shocked that we were running around in our dressing gowns trying to get our kids dressed and out the door so I could do my interview. But it was so shocking that I was having to stop my wife and read the stuff out that you've uncovered and put into order. Are, are you talking about the pieces around transmission or yes, something else? and safety. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll read, shall I read out a few of the I would pieces? like you, I would like you to walk us through basically on safety, on why they gave the uh, immunity from prosecution and suit, um, the yeah. transmission, and the dates, and the significance of those dates, please. Can you just yeah, walk okay. us through that? Well, just since we've been talking about transmission and really that the, the limitations on the right to remove medical treatment should, should hinge on transmission, we'll start with that. So, so the COVID Technical Advisory Group, they minuted in February of 2021 that the impact of the vaccine on transmission was unknown. So, so then we jump forward to there is a, a, a report dated 19 May of 2021 that um, was done by the COVID Vaccine Technical Advisory Group. And and that seems to acknowledge that the vaccine doesn't reduce transmission in, in a conventional sense, because what they say is this, the characteristics of the Pfizer-BioNTech Comirnaty COVID-19 vaccine mean that it cannot be used in the traditional sense of ring vaccination. Now, I read that and I thought, well, what does ring vaccination mean? Is that like a commonly used term? Because I know what it sounds like. Yeah. It's like you can't ring fence an infection or an outbreak by using it as a sort of a, a ring fence, right? And so I, I looked it up, and that's exactly what it means. The date of so, that? Uh, 19, 19 May 2021. Now, was that before the mandates? Yeah, it was a good six months. Because the mandates were November 2021. So nothing changed. There's no report that said, oh, hang on, it does work. They were they knew. The government's advisory group knew six months before the mandates came in that the jab didn't reduce transmission. Well, that, that's that they haven't said it in those words. No, but that's what that's what I that's what I believe, I believe they're saying. That's what the common sense reading and yep. the checking of the meaning of the phrase tell us. Yeah, yeah. So, so in on the so if we jump back a bit um, on the tenth of February, twenty twenty one. Ashley Bloomfield wrote a paper addressed to Chris Hipkins, 
And he said there, while we do not know yet the extent to which the vaccines prevent COVID-19 transmission, vaccination is expected to reduce transmission through reducing the severity of disease and therefore the risk of onward transmission. So he uses that same argument when he goes to the High Court in an affidavit um, in September of 2021. And he he says that, um, what does he actually say? Um, yeah, the, the reduction of symptoms such as coughing and sneezing will mean that there'll be a reduction in transmission. But now, even that, was, that, sorry, sorry. Well, well I, I was kind of, that stopped me in my tracks. That I was blown away by that because to me, that's high school debating team level argument. Yes. That's not our chief public health official going to the high court in an affidavit to talk about the vaccine's ability to um stop transmission because if I was on the other side of that high school debate I would say well by reducing somebody's symptoms you know you could equally argue that you were going to make them more likely to transmit the disease because they might not know they're sick or they might think they've just got a mild cold and out they go to work or to university or to school and or to a concert <laughs> and so that you can equally argue that a reduction of symptoms would contribute to the spread of the disease and in actual fact you know there, there was actually a study published in September of 2021 where they looked at the viral load and the nasal pharyngeal cavity of um, different people and found that the vir highest viral load was actually recorded in asymptomatic vaccinated individuals. So that appears to be all they had. You cough and sneeze less. What was his exact phrase again? Can you read that to us? Well, I haven't got his exact phrase here. I've only sort of got my um, transcript of it, but I, 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 could, I could look it up. No, but just tell us what you've got. The, the reduction of symptoms such as coughing and sneezing reduces transmission. But when you quoted something he said in February, just before. Oh, in February, while yeah. we do not yet know the extent to which the vaccines prevent COVID-19 transmission, vaccination is expected to reduce transmission through reducing the severity of disease and therefore the risk of onward transmission. So that's saying nothing. It's a, it's a journalistic trick of saying, oh, this may happen or this is expected to happen, right? It's not, you can say, you could wrap anything around expected, can't you? Mm, mm. Yeah, exactly. So in February, he expected transmission not to occur because it would reduce symptoms. But as you're saying, that could have a, opposite effect, then when you jump to the advisory team and May, in May they're saying it doesn't stop transmission. 
its characteristics mean that it cannot be used in the traditional sense of ring vaccination. And yet, the vaccine was mandated by law. People lost their jobs, lost their houses, lost their livelihoods on the basis that not only would this vaccine stop you getting COVID, it would stop the transmission. There's no other logic for having it mandated if it doesn't stop transmission, because it's the stopping of transmission that gives, if you like, the public benefit, not just the private benefit. That's right. Here's, here's the Wikipedia definition of ring vaccination. It is a strategy to inhibit the spread of disease by vaccinating those who are most likely to be infected. This strategy vaccinates the contacts of confirmed patients and people who are in close contacts with those patients. This way, everyone who has been or could have been exposed to a patient receives the vaccine, creating a ring of protection that can limit the spread of a pathogen. When you think of this, this is a scandal of scandals because this isn't, isn't a note sent off to a minister um, from a wayward um, doctor or advisor. This is the very group set up to advise government on COVID. The very group that is set up to advise the government on COVID say, in their advice, officially, no basis to stopping transmission. I'm summarising. We don't need to go dwell on the point that they use this odd language or um, yeah. professional language. That's what it says. Mm. And yet, government went and mandated it. Well, this is, um, we'll jump ahead a little bit, but here's another one that is gobsmacking. So this I, I look, was... I look just, just hang there, because like, oh. this is what hit me this morning, and it's still hitting me. <laughs> and I was jumping up and down to my wife. My kids were late to school, because I said, this is impossible. This can't happen. Isn't that how you feel? Well, not anymore. It, it's how I used to feel. But now I'm not desensitised to it. But, you know, I, I, I get more amazed when I do get shocked. Because <laughs> you think you're unshockable. Yeah, yeah. And it still happens. Well, that one shocked me. i got to tell you, and I'm sitting here some hours on, and I almost can't process it. I can't process it. I can't process how officials would write that. No, the advisory group would write that. Literally, in government, hundreds would read it. 
I'm well, not. Gonna, I don't know. Did they? No, I do. I do know because I know how government works. So you'd be the minister, and I would get reports, and I wouldn't read them necessarily, but my trusted advisors would, people that I have known for years, and trust literally with my career, would be scanning everything that would come across my desk, and alerting me to any problem right at at my daily meetings with them because there's no way a minister can read everything i would be reading this report if i was minister of health i gotta tell you that because you know that's at that level because it's the advisory group but even if i didn't hundreds of people across departments would have read that and across ministers because that report wouldn't just go to chris farfoy not one of them, the government then, in the most tyrannical display of power that I can think of, outside of constricting young men to go to war, did this tyrannical decision on the public of New Zealand to huge distress, and yet, not one mm. person who knew it was. But the, the transmission okay. one was, was funny, though, because I saw this piece fairly early on and I thought, wow, you know, that, that's a real smoking gun. But, but I still couldn't get people when I was having, you know, my interactions with them to sort of see it for what it was because they said, well, it's still, it reduces transmission. It doesn't stop it, but it does reduce transmission. And one of my tricks <laughs> to formulate, you know, my strategies was to listen to um, Sean Plunkett. Yeah. Because I oh, used yes, to cause he was on board with us. Absolute nonsense that he would spout and the, the the rudeness with which he would interview people. And I'd pretend that I was them. And what would I say? And so thank you, Sean, because he really helped me sort of formulate and clear my thinking. And that's how I, I, I narrowed in on it comes down to this coughing and sneezing bit. That's that's all they've got. They, they're just saying <laughs> that it reduces transmission because it reduces the amount of coughing and sneezing, so you're not spraying the germs around. And I thought, well, that, again, is a very high school argument because you could equally say more symptoms means less likely to isolate yourself and stay home because we all know, don't we, you're how yes. we gave Airy eyeball to anyone who was coughing and sneezing mm -hmm. back in 2021. You're like really giving them sort of dirty looks and going, you know, go home. So but we did we did that when I was a kid at school. <laughs> if someone was coughing and sneezing, you didn't want them to come to school. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So weird. if that's the level of uh, you know, if if there's more around evidence of reducing transmission, I'd really like to see it. But as far as I can find, it comes down to that. Unspeakable. 
So I'm sorry mm-hmm. to dwell on that because it's still so monstrous. Um, I actually can't take it on board that all this loss of jobs, loss of housing, loss of homes, divorces, families not talking, protests, river of filth, court cases, no basis to it. Mm. Well, it, it comes down, it really is, It's an, you should dwell on it because it's a really important one because, you know, back when they were putting all of the infrastructure around putting the orders in place, the Ministry of Justice told them that they could only limit the rights under the NZ Bill of Rights um, if it was going to reduce transmission. So there's more to this that you've uncovered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I mean, there's some efficacy stuff. I, I missed this. You know, I talked about last time the Burback committee meetings that I used to watch and the documents that I used to read. Um, but when in September of 2021, when they were looking to get a booster approved, Pfizer submitted their documentation to the FDA's Burback committee. And <laughs> They actually, so what they did, they when they did their initial trial, they had a vaccinated arm and an unvaccinated arm, about 18,000 people in each. And at some point sort of around, I think it was around sort of February, March of 2021, they went, oh, our vaccine's been so amazing that because it's 95% effective, so we're going to unblind everybody and tell them whether they were vaccinated or not and then offer the vaccine to the people that didn't have it because we don't feel that it's difficult to withhold it from them because it's so fabulous. So I don't actually know how many of them took that up, but they were offered it. So when it came time to sort of look, they were still studying them. So when they came to um, apply for their booster, so they said that the initial arm that got the vaccine they had 70 cases per thousand person years of COVID over the time. And the initial lot that didn't get the vaccine, although some may have had it subsequently, although they've had it for a shorter amount of time, they had 51 cases per thousand years of COVID. So the vaccinated got more COVID And then the very last sentence says only three severe COVID cases were reported during the analysis period, all of which were among the study participants originally in the vaccinated arm. So not only did the vaccinated get more COVID, they also got more severe COVID. Without any need to have statistical analysis, at best you would say it makes no difference, or who knows, because you'd need some sophisticated statistics, it makes Mm. you more likely to get sick. Mm. And, you know, we know that vaccine, um, vaccine vaccine-associated enhanced disease is, you know, in Pfizer's own words, an important unknown risk and always has been. It's in their management plan. So their their trial 
showed at best no efficacy and at worst negative efficacy. Mm. Yes. Day one. Well, yeah, this was September of 2021, so we're still pre-vaccine passes and pre-work um, mandates, oh, except for the border workers in New Zealand. Um, and this was publicly available, it wasn't hidden, because anything that gets posted for the Verbat um, committee meeting uh, is there to see before the meeting happens. So I, I I didn't pick this one up. I only bought it about two weeks ago. And that was one of the things where I, it shocked me when I say I'm surprised when I'm shocked. I was shocked when I saw that. Um, Again, and that's in the United States of America. That will, yeah, Verbeck is the FDA's um, sort of like our MedSafe, or not MedSafe, yeah, well, like our MAC, like our... Yeah. But, like, what I'm saying is this is in a very sophisticated and large political jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. With, it's, all, uh, it's, with uh, all the yeah. checks and balances and fourth estate that you could imagine. Like, I find you couldn't get it, that you could get away with that in New Zealand, but to get away with it in the United States. Mm. And, he, and here you are. You know, little old New Zealand, and you missed it, and you're apologizing for missing it, sort of thing. But people, thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people, you, hmm. no one said a thing. As politicians and bureaucrats, wow, lied. There's no, there's, there's no basis. There's no basis. Well, we'll get onto the safety in a minute, but there's no basis to saying it was effective. No basis to saying it would stop a transmission. No basis whatsoever. As you say, a high school student could see through it. Well, so the COVID technical advisory group, so January, so let's all We're back in New Zealand now. This is the New yeah, Zealand group. Yeah. So, so, so the end of January 2022, so that was the summer that, you know, everybody had to have vaccine passes to go places and, you know, people need vaccine passes because they need to know when they go into a cafe that, you know, the people around them are keeping them safe, right? So this is the COVID Technical Advisory Group <clears throat> minutes of the 28th of January 2022. So I'll, I'll so quote, the traffic light system might not be fit for purpose, unquote. So then they start again, quote, gives people the impression it is safe to meet indoors at large gatherings if they have a vaccine pass. There is no mention of boosters. There is concern since young people were the last group to be vaccinated and will not be getting their boosters for another four months. This is the demographic that will be going to the large events with a false sense of security which will accelerate the spread of Omicron, unquote. And the significance? Well, what they're saying here is their vaccine passes, A, weren't fit for purpose, 
because of the length of time that they um, could safely inject people. And but the efficacy was so short that they knew that people were walking around with their vaccine passes with a false sense of security and effectively making the disease spread faster, which is exactly... I get it, because what they... I would play devil's advocate, or they would say in their defence, oh, but we had this new variant, Omicron. Who knew? Well, you know, everyone. But... um. That defense doesn't work because they were lying to us. Because they're saying that this whole, just correct me if I got this wrong, Kathy. They're saying this whole vaccine pass is counterproductive in our terms, their terms, not ours, their terms, because it's giving a false sense of security because there's no security within it. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you didn't have the vaccine pass, you were a second-class citizen. That's right, and you'll remember this it. was this was the time. Remember that sort of boosters when they first came out. You know, you um, could have them only when you had had your primary course six months ago. And that and the saying is that, that it was. It wasn't even working for six months. No, no. So in February 22, the meeting, the same meeting recorded that the the third vaccination, the booster, is not expected to last much longer than three months. So, so they're sort of, you know, it's all unfolding and then they're seeing that the efficacy, if any, um, or against the variant that they had at the time, looked to be about, three months where you had, and then you had sort of either zero or negative efficacy. Um, Yet yet, the the data sheet, which gave this thing provision of the terms of which this thing had provisional approval, said the booster had to be at least six months after the primary course. And it always said that. It never changed until we got the bivalent and it got a new data sheet. But the original formula that we had, the vaccine, the booster always had to be six months after completion of the primary course. But so remember what, how... What, what was happening, just let me understand this, I'm just for everyone, you're on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're talking to Kathy Jameson, who's this wonderful researcher, tenacious researcher, we'll say, I think genius too, genius researcher. And we're just covering this off. You couldn't get your booster for six months for safety reasons, Kathy. That you well, need the six month gap. That's what the, the manufacturer said. It had to be at least six months after the primary course. Okay. That was Pfizer's instructions. But the difficulty being that the efficacy of the vaccine was only three months. That must have been what they were seeing. They they recorded that. In February of 2022, that the booster, the third vaccination, was not expected to last much longer than three months. So, so you had we, a three-month period where you were no different in ability to catch or spread COVID 
than the next person that was unvaccinated, possibly worse. Mm -hmm. And yet they couldn't give you a booster because the manufacturer's own sheet wouldn't allow you to. Well, no, they did, remember? And this oh, is what I, I don't remember because I was I was in bad shape. <laughs> um, yeah. No, well they they um so in I can't remember the dates now exactly, but it was around in January of 2022. So uh, when they were seeing all of this, they went, oh, no, we're going to open up the eligibility for boosters for those that want one um, at, th at four months after your primary course. And then that lasted a couple of weeks. And then they said, oh, we're going to open up the eligibility for those that want them for three months after your primary course. So that's what happened in New Zealand. But that was against the manufacturer's own yes. advice. Yes. yes. So it was always only eligibility. So if you wanted one, you could Got be it. eligible. But they never, they never, uh, the mandates, like the, the orders, always had this requirement to have the booster at 183 days after completion of your primary course, which is six months. They knew they couldn't mandate a booster for a shorter time period. They never changed that because that, was that was the present instructions. But there were people going around, and I know for a fact there were people that were told they had to have their booster for work purposes three months after their primary course, which was always never. It was never in the order. So there were people that were um, coerced to have more injections more frequently than was in the order. I know that happened. I can't imagine, even after going through COVID, that that happened. <laughs> I actually, health professionals, advisory groups, civil servants, politicians, ministers, this is in front of them. Hmm. Well, it's and it's still happening now because yes. if you think so, so those health workers that stayed in their jobs didn't want this these shots, but took them. They would have had them fifteenth of November, and sort of the last few days of December, because that was what the order I think said. So those people would have worked for six months. And then, unless they wanted to lose their jobs, they would have had to have their booster at the end of June, the beginning of July. So, so that's the requirement now for Tefatu. So they would have had that, and now they'll. And here we are now. What are we now? Nearly the beginning of July, right? So nearly a year since. So it would have been happening exactly a year ago. All of that. So those people, according to these minutes of the um, COVID technical advisory group, would have had um, benefit, air quotes, from that vaccine for three months. So they're no more protected than the unvaccinated nurse that lost her job and is still trying to get back to work and can't. 
And again, this isn't some rogue doctor making an argument to government from within the system or from outside. This is the exact advisory group set up the preeminent group to advise government on what to do. And they did the opposite. This was in February 2022 when the parliamentary protest occurred. Mm. The protesters' entire point was exactly the advice of officials or experts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the parliamentary protesters were saying to Parliament and to Government exactly what the Government's advisors were saying. I'd never thought of that, but yes, you're right. Um, again, how do you, you must be sitting in your house, head, I mean, my head is going, exploding, I I don't know how listeners are are coping, I mean, it was a conspiracy, it is a conspiracy, It's, it's a conspiracy, in full view, once you get under the Official Information Act, the documents. The protesters were a hundred percent right. It was nuts. It was wrong. Not, well, let- not because we have experts on our side opposing what the government is saying or doing. The government's own experts were opposing what the government was saying and doing, by implication. Mm. Have I well, made too big a jump? No, no. I, no, I don't think so. But I, I want to talk now, if we if we can move to safety, because we're going, as, as per usual, we're going on a bit. You and well, I. I'm, well, I'm. I apologise <laughs> to the listeners. I apologise to you because, like, I read it a week ago. Fast. I read it this morning to prepare, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, oh, I know that. Oh, 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 the safety bit's worse. Take us through it. Well, so there is this this document, which was a briefing document. Um. Date does it have on it? So again, this has been released by OIA. Doesn't seem to have a date, but yeah, I think it just must for be- listeners, just for listeners, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to preeminent researcher Kathy Jamison. She's got her hands on official documents. This isn't, you know, Doctor P Dunk from, you know, a university. This is the government's own advice from its experts which they told us, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Health, 
told us they were absolutely reliant on following the science. The science they were relying on was what the protesters were saying. We've done transmission. We've done efficacy. And now we're doing safety. Take it away, Kathy. So this this must have been, this document must be, it doesn't have a date on it, but it must be around the time, sort of October of 2020, when they were looking at signing the very first agreement with Pfizer, um, the, the, the agreement that we, you know, don't know the terms of. Um, so this is a briefing document around the indemnity that um, had to be signed. Um, so the, the title of it is Request that the Minister of Finance give an indemnity in favour of Pfizer and BioNTech under Section 65ZD of the Public Finance Act 1989. So in, in this briefing document, which is signed of the copy I've got, is only signed by one person. It's got two places for signatures. Now, the person that signed it was the de- Deputy Director General, um, System Strategy and Policy, Delegate of Chief Delegate of the Chief Executive of the Ministry of Health. So this person's signing in lieu of Bloomfield. And the other person who hasn't signed it is um, Delegate of the Chief Executive of MB. So the things that are said in there, uh, the indemnity was sought by Pfizer because... They were developing it in clinical trials that are less likely than non-accelerated trials to detect uncommon adverse events or possible contraindications. The health. So, 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 just I'm, I'm very sorry to do this. You no, no, go ahead. What it's saying is, Pfizer needs immunity from causing illness or death, right? Needs to be legally protected. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yep. the first reason Pfizer says we need protection from any adverse effect of this because, say it again. Well, because it, it's saying, um, it's saying they have accelerated the clinical trials. Which we knew, yes. but, but that argument was always pushed back against when a person like me and, said it. And they say we've had to accelerate the trials, and that means, in their words, what? That it's they're less likely to detect uncommon adverse events or possible contraindications. So when the government signed the contract for the Pfizer vaccine, and went on to mandate it, they gave immunity to Pfizer because Pfizer said, understand this, we can't be sure it's safe because we've accelerated the trials. And the government signed that knowing it couldn't be guaranteed as safe by the manufacturer's own words. Yes. Mm. Yep. Then there's the next clause. 
So the health risks of COVID-19 vaccines are less clear because no coronavirus vaccine has ever been successfully developed before. So because we've never had a vaccine for coronavirus, we're not sure what this is going to mean well, long term. I don't think that's what they're saying. I think okay. they're saying that they've tried before and it wasn't successful. The ah. health risks of COVID-19 vaccines are less clear because no coronavirus vaccine has ever been successfully developed before. Like what was ah, the it's not developed before. They've developed the them H1? before, but they've never been successful. Yeah, so that H1N1 or whatever it was, the one that gave everybody narcolepsy, well, not everybody, sorry, the one that gave some people narcolepsy um, and was withdrawn, that was the swine flu, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So maybe, I don't know, perhaps that is the sort of thing they're talking about. I'm not sure. But to me that reads like they have tried but haven't been successful. But the next one's the kicker. The next one's the kicker. So hold on to your hats. This vaccine candidate is an RNA vaccine. Due to the relative newness of the platform and the truncated clinical trials, which means a reduced ability to identify rare or long-term side effects, we are unlikely to want to immunise the entire population using solely this vaccine candidate. <laughs> and they went on and did exactly that. Mm. The Herald. Which much gusto. School principals, TV personalities, and then the mandates. Read that, read that clause again. This vaccine candidate is an RNA vaccine. Due to the relative newness of the platform and the truncated clinical trials, which means a reduced ability to identify rare or long-term side effects, we are unlikely to want to immunise the entire population using solely this vaccine candidate. That's the government and Pfizer in their agreement. Well, no, no, this is a briefing document. Oh, sorry. Jointly signed or jointly, somewhere there must be a signed copy, um, but basically by representatives who are representing the chief executives of MB and the Ministry of Health. And then there's another one, isn't there? One more. Um, what does that one say? Oh, yeah. RNA vaccines like B and T162 have not previously been approved for human use in New Zealand and will require a careful risk-benefit assessment as part of the regulatory approval process. So we talked about that last time, didn't we? The fact yes. that um, in August of 2022, a OIA revealed that no New Zealand agency had done a risk-benefit assessment on these vaccines, apart from the one that was done in very early in 2021 prior to the consent being granted. And that one came out unclear. But at no point during sort of all of 2021 or through to August 2022 
did any New Zealand agency attempt another one according to the OIA that I've got? Which if is, you were if you were a doctor and you gave the that exact advice to a patient, you lost your registration. You were a conspiracy theorist, and you were publicly vilified. Yes. To this day, doctors' careers have been ended. They still can't get registration. They can't work. They're still vilified. Was saying yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Explain to me again the context of this document. Like, what was this document serving to do? Well, I, I only sort of have it in isolation. So, because um, it's it's come out of an OIA. So, I've, but the Grant Robertson has signed these indemnity notices and i've i've seen two two one signed in october of 2020 and one signed in um late february of 2021 um so all i know um is this this was a sort of a, a document that around the indemnities um so the context of it i guess it goes with the um the contract itself but uh, because i don't know anything about that contract nobody does apart from the people who were privy to it um i don't really i can't really talk to you too much about about the context of it and where it sits, but it has an annex that is completely redacted, which is the binding term sheet. And that's where the binding term sheet, maybe this is the Pfizer contract itself because there's a sign for on behalf of Pfizer, Inc., and then signed for on behalf of the Sovereign and Right of New Zealand, acting through the Director-General of the Ministry of Health. So that's not been signed, that part. So the bit that I took all those quotes out of that I just read to you was from this um, sort of briefing document that um, went to everybody, I suppose, that was going to be involved in the signing of it. We don't sound so nutty now, do we? No, well, I don't think we ever sounded nutty at all. But no. um, you know, there was certainly um, some, you know, certainly some some effort put into making people who were saying these things early on 
sound nutty. I mean, the, the piece around the doctors, you know, I sort of liken it to because what used to really annoy me was hearing the likes of, you know, Nikki Turner or anyone else saying, you know, if you want advice on your COVID vaccine, you know, go and um, talk to your doctor. And I thought, well, what we've got going on, to use sort of a like a sheepyard analogy, is, you know, when they flick that little gate <laughs> where <laughs> all the sheepyards and sheep go one way or go another, they basically had that gate l- locked open so if we if the gate sort of is the risk benefit discussion they had that gate locked so that all the sheep went to the benefit yard because if you went to see your doctor your doctor had their gate locked yes they couldn't tell you about the risks they could only tell you about the benefits so there wasn't really any point going to see your doctor because your doctor couldn't unless they were very very brave and willing to risk their license have an honest conversation with you no and And, the people who were actually vaccinating it was legislated out when they sort of gave them those vaccination vaccinators permission to vaccinate people they left out the clause that's usually in that says they have to know about the the disease and and the risks of the vaccination. Yes. So there was no requirement for those people to have that knowledge, so they couldn't give it to you either. So the only place you could really get it was from, you know, a doctor that was prepared to risk all or by doing your own research like reading Mm. and you look back on it and you think well if we were in an emergency scenario bar for what was arguably commercially sensitive and even that's a big question mark you would release everything because you're following the science So all the advice that the government was getting, such as you've got now, should have been released on the day the the decision was made on its basis. So you could see the basis for it. They couldn't release their advice because if their advice was released, no one would have got vaccinated. I mean, if you had a functioning media, (laughs) right, and you release this advice, who on earth would ever have got vaccinated? So they had to hide it against the law, which is the official information law. All information is to be made public bar for statutorily stated reasons which are quite tight. I'd go as far as to say, why did anybody even buy this product? Yes, exactly. Because because it didn't, you know, the the signs were there right from the beginning. Why hasn't there been a whistleblower? 
Oh, I don't know. And I here's another know. thing, Kathy. When they went to court on multiple times, they never allowed discovery, clearly. Mm. Because if an opposing lawyer had discovered those documents, the government's case was dead. So the Solicitor General must have sat on documents, surely. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I wonder about I wonder about that a lot. You know, why has these things, why have they not well, made their it, way? Isn't it a good opportunity now for Mr. Luxon and Mr. Seymour, the two opposition leaders, to climb off their very high horse that they climbed upon, God knows why, and say, we've just seen these documents. We are horrified. Well, if they did that, it'd be dramatic politics. And it would be true, because these are the documents. They've been released officially. They're not made up. And they'd say, we took the Labour government at its word. We never demanded to see the documents. We realise now we should have. They would destroy this government and win the next election and there'd be transparency and truth and a proper inquiry. But they well, won't. Well, I mean, they they've won't. had this opportunity for a long time. You know, they, they won't. They've got, they've got the resources, more resources than I've got, and I've found it. So they're and, either on a very high horse because they've got the perfect excuse to get off it, right? Haven't they? Well, you know, this is this is the thing. There's so much information there that could be used to have an absolute landslide victory. Yes, I mean, and it's, it's not being utilised. And I mean, I'm not going to sort of waste my time trying to no. figure out why not. But no. why not? Well, why not? You, it's the biggest policy ever undertaken in New Zealand, the biggest tyranny ever undertaken in New Zealand, the most controversial thing in so many ways with that parliamentary protest, for sure, the most consequential or immediately consequential thing, some policies are bad and their bad effects come up years later, but this was immediately consequential to a great many New Zealanders for their health and livelihood. And it was done at breakneck speed without due process or the normal process of decision-making in government, policy-making. And the documents show that the decision was contrary to the advice being received, contrary to the science, 
and contrary to what the manufacturer itself was saying and discovered in their own trials and reported. And I'll go a little further, feeling my way here. The only people that were right were the doctors who spoke out and the protesters, not just those that turned up to Parliament, but those who objected to the policy. Mm. And if you go down the conspiracy theories, every one of them was ticked by the advice the government received. I mean, if you know what I mean, not necessarily that there's a worldwide conspiracy on this, but the conspiracy theory that this isn't going to work, you're going to need more boosters, you're going to have mandates, yada, 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 it's not going to do this. Every bit of that, the government's advice affirmed. Mm. Well, And I mean, if you're going to do a risk-benefit analysis, if they've said that the booster, you know, is unlikely to last longer than three months, well, when you look at the sort of um, things that are being reported to them by their own citizens through CALM, and they've, you know, they the full reports have ended up being in VIAs, and I have sent you that file for the 17 to 25-year-olds to have a look at. Um, when, or when you look at that, you just have to eyeball down it and see what's happening and how's, how's, how temporally related to the, the shot it was. And if you look and go, okay, well, for three months protection from COVID, would I risk it? I mean, it's a resounding no. Can you explain for listeners what that VIRS report shows for that age group? Or do well, you have there to see are, it? I mean, you, you, you do sort of really have to see it. But for that age group, we have got five deaths. So that's 17 to, to 25. And I can't, I haven't got, um, I must not, I haven't got the date of death for one of them. But the four that I had, the days, the time between their injection and their death was 10 days, 13 days, and two days, and five days. And this is what Pfizer has had to report to the American VAERS system because Pfizer was aware of them. We learned that in our last interview. And so we actually have the adverse effects date relative to the date when they got the jab, which we don't have in the New Zealand data, as I understand it, Kathy. That's right, we don't. And what you're saying is this is a very small subset of the adverse effects reported in New Zealand because these are the ones that Pfizer became aware of and had to report to the American system. And it's a very small subset of what actually happened. Well, yes. I mean, the underreporting. Um, is, is, I mean, it's not a, yeah. Then you say 
if something happens in a couple of weeks from getting a jab that's worth researching, 17 to 29-year-olds typically don't die. And yet well, there's five. I mean, Matt Shelton, I heard Matt Shelton um, and I've talked to Alison Goodwin myself, and I, uh, both of them are saying not of the sort of things that we're seeing, um, you know, them, them die of in these reports is, you know, they don't generally die of those things. Speechless, isn't it? Mm. Mm. I just feel like howling, crying, beating my head against a wall, feeling sad and lost and bewildered. Um, and I mean, the, I mean the the what have we got here? Type one diabetes. The, so these are the injuries. Onset five days after the injection. Um, pancreatitis. Onset one day after. Um, this one's as. I mean, I'm just, I mean, and there's 300 of these that I've got for that age group, 17 to 25. Um, well, from the VIRS system, but they are yeah. New Zealand reports. Yeah. And and again, they are a small subset. I mean, in the, um, in the page that, you know, I say that um, th this roughly correlates to the um, amount of deaths and the amount of serious reports that were reported in November of 2022. Um, but we know that the serious reports have increased by 350% since they did that because of that OIA I talked about last time. Yes. Can, so you, it's not can you write that up, Kathy, for us? And we get it published and spread it around. Sure. Uh, you, yeah, you'd need to give me a, a slightly um, more um, sort of direction as to what specifically you want written up, but absolutely I can. I will. And we will get it out through Rally Check Radio or wherever um, and give it because. Hearing it is one thing, reading it helps because it's extraordinary. Mm. Have you got any more bombshells for us this morning? Um, I've always got a few. No, I don't, need, I don't need you to have any more bombshells. You've bombshelled me enough. But I'm just <laughs> saying, is there anything else that you need? Because we'll have you back on, obviously, when you next uncover your thing. I'm just don't wanting to shut you off yeah. and have no, no. Well, famous... I, I guess all I would say is to anybody that's still facing coercion to get a vaccine and they don't want it. Yes. In you know there there are um, and, and you know if you, particularly I mean we're going to get as Rodney has just said we're going to get this sort of available, made available to people. But if anyone's got, you know, particularly if you've got an urgent requirement, you know, there are lots of really good questions that you can ask. 
Yes, well, um, send, if you want to contact Kathy, text me at 2057, uh, email me at inbox at It would be very, very handy just now if there's anyone in a position and out of their goodness of heart, I know Kathy won't say this, but to give her some support because she's done all this at some cost to herself and her family and it's crunch time. But this is so significant and you can contact me, 2057 text, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. And if you are being pushed or your child or grandchild or anyone you know is being pushed to take a vaccine that they don't want, text me, email me, and I can get it to Kathy and she can get a response. Because the entire thing is wrong and dangerous. And a monstrous crime has been committed here. And it's been hidden. And it's been hidden not because government didn't have the information. They had it. What we've reported here today isn't what we think. It isn't what opponents of the policy think. It's what Pfizer and the government's very advisors were saying before these policies were implemented. That's what we've been reporting here today. That's what's so shocking about it. And what Kathy's picking up in Calm and Veers are the tragic medical consequences that are now all too readily becoming apparent. So do text us, do email, email us. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio, where we've run out of superlatives to describe oh. Kathy Jamison. And we're almost rendered speechless by what she's revealed and what has gone on. Whatever you thought was going on, this shows it was worse. Kathy, thank you for everything that you've done and do. Thank you for thank standing. You. Thank you for standing up for people. And thank you for your tenacity and your analytical ability. And even where I try and push you a little bit to go beyond your data, you pull me back. So it's a very sober analysis. It's not hysterical, is it? No, not in public. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. I, I have my moments. <laughs> on that note, we will thank Kathy on everyone's behalf. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a pleasure. That was Kathy Jameson. Truth bomb after truth bomb is what they say, isn't it? We've had it.
Thank you so much. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've come to the favorite bit of the show, the bit that I love the most. It's feedback time. I'm into the mailbag. Hi, Rodney. I've just finished listening to your interview with Lorraine Moller. I loved it quite a little. Had goosebumps as Lorraine described some of her events and smiled as she described her feelings before, during, and after her events. Wasn't it something? That was a rare insight into what it is to be an Olympian. Smiled too as my memories of watching or listening to the various Olympic and Commonwealth Games in which New Zealanders are competing. Pam. Thank you, Pam. That was a very special interview. Lorraine just opened up and what an amazing human being. Dr. Brash, are you aware of the Littlewood Treaty? I'm sure Don is. I don't know what the implication of it is. I think he's got his hands full with the actual treaty. Rodney, talking quietly only means I can't hear you. Oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. I'll do better. Our PM has been to the World Economic Forum summer meeting in China. I know. Can you believe it? Surrounded by Z and Schwab. I know. Terrible. He has been utterly captured. Probably. Could RCR please discuss, debate, or inform? Yes, we should. I wish I knew more. Um, but maybe we should go and find someone that does know something and they could tell us. Absolutely. 100% right on today, Rodney and Don. Thank you. Rodney with Don Brash. Dear Rodney, between you both, can you discuss the upcoming voting for the National Party and the consequences? My opinion is that National are just a blue tinge of Labour. Yeah, that's my view too. We need emphasis, a complete change. I agree. What are the two-step party vote and area vote can voters do to achieve an overturn of the current control and bringing sense back into New Zealand politics and governing by practicality, not totality or wokery? Thanks, Rob. Well, I wish I knew, Rob. I don't think there's much on offer. Um, I'm going to be throwing my vote to the party that will promise a comprehensive select committee inquiry into the COVID injured, the vaccine injured. That's what I'm doing. <clears throat> that's all I care about at the moment. Oh, no, that's not true. There's so much, but what's on offer doesn't deal with the problem. Looking forward to Casey. Costello being nominated for Race Relations Commissioner, Liz. Oh, wouldn't that be delightful? Rodney, the Ukraine war is about smoke and mirrors and causing upset and marketing Russia as bad. Ukraine also satisfies the military war complex, tuning over profits and dollars to hide. World economics is about buying gold reserves. BRICS is about upsetting America's plans on CBDC. I don't know what BRICS and CBDC is, I'm sorry, and upsetting Britain's plans on destabilizing America. Europe and Britain money has always wanted America to fail. The bank's failing is about CBDC and stealing your money from your savings. The pandemic was an exercise in research on world control. All health regulations are the first step to controlling your money through restrictions and stealing your money. Yes. Hate Trump, also smoke and mirrors. Rob, yeah, well, I think there's a lot of truth to some of that, but I don't know all of it. <clears throat> Kingsley, marry seats are racist. Yes, they are. Separation of church and state. Yes, yes, I agree. Separation of race and state. Why not? Of course. Questions about a race-based party too. Yes. 
race should be irrelevant, actually. Shouldn't even come up in conversation. It's meaningless. What race are you? What? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Who you are matters. And that's not defined by your race. Who you are matters. Rodney, we are now one people. Equality has always been the objective, but apartheid is here and strongly dividing this once great nation. I agree. As everyone knows, we've all arrived here from overseas. No one has more rights than others. Abolish marification and Treaty of Waitangi. Stop co-governance now. Five in the hive have to go. No more Maori wards. I agree. Hello, Rodney. In the spirit of Western A. Price, is there anything specific to look out for in purchasing cod liver oil? I've recently acquired Sally Morrell's Nourishing Diets. I think it's Nourishing Traditions, but I know the book, but not yet found anything to answer this. I'm not a natural meat eater. Any supplements I take, my preference is to be as close to the original food source. Cod liver oil seems a preferable way to take vitamin D and K together. Your thoughts appreciated. Big thanks to you and all the team at RCR. You're like an adopted family. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Marianne. Um, I take a fermented cod liver oil, but I know this at Cold Pressed, but I know that on the Western A Price webpage, they have recommendations for which brands and products are best to buy. So I'd start there. Uh, Nick Smith's family benefits from his family's wind farm. Thank guy, thank guys for the truth, Ollie. I didn't know that. Um, Rodney, could you get in Plymouth onto your program and discuss his book? Now that's a great idea. How to get expelled from school? Book is about debunking climate change. In the back of the book, hundred and one questions to bamboozle teachers and deniers. Yes, let's do that. Um, we'll definitely try and get in on. Hi, Rodney, just listen to your reading out an email from a fellow who has incredible joint pain and uses cannabis to provide relief. Good on him. A few years ago, I found an Aussie Clint Patterson with two B, two Ds, whose program would most likely sort out the poor bloke. Can you pass this email on to him, please? Here are some of the short videos I recently made to help you on your health mission. I will send that to him, David. Thank you for that. This is from Jim Rodney. I've just listened, finished listening to your interview with Barry Brill, who I've been following for several years. My plea to you is please, please, please ensure that this interview is published on Bassett Brash and Hyde to get as wide as possible distribution prior to the election. I believe that turning Luxon before the election is critical because if he ends up doing two terms and sticks to his current position, New Zealand will permanently be permanently damaged beyond imagination. Cheers, Jim. I think that's true, Jim. I think it is critical. It's always critical in an election, but you feel in the last two terms of this government, the, our world's been turned upside down, and we've got to stop it. Please send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio, or send me a text, 2057. 2057. I do love hearing from you. This is Reality Check Radio, and this is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. I'm just loving the show. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. 
You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, and we have another minister, I've lost count, uh, Kerry Allen. She's on having a few days off. That comes after her having a few days off and a few days off. Uh, But she stresses her time off now isn't for her mental health. It's to look after her child. But what I want to concentrate on is allegations of bullying against her. And as I understand it, there are four senior civil servants who have complained of bullying. And CEOs have been involved. Now, the Prime Minister says he's going to have a chat with the Minister when he gets back from somewhere or when she gets back from having time off, about matters. Quite why he's not had a chat to her before, I don't know, because I can promise you if CEOs had concerns about her bullying, uh, the Prime Minister's office would definitely know. But, of course, now it's in the paper. He's got to pretend he didn't know, and now he's going to do something about it. And reading between the lines, it sounds quite serious and that she could be gone. But this bullying is a feature of government. It's the very nature of government to bully you. That's almost its point, because government is the only organisation in a society that can legally use force so it can lock you up and it can punish you and it can fine you and so it's only by force that it gets things done in fact the only way that a minister gets paid or a government funds a program is by bullying because The government doesn't collect its money cap in hand and say, look, if you can spare a few bob, drop it in the hat. No, 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 no. Government takes it off you through force. In fact, it's so clever, government, at gathering money off you, it gets the money that you earn before you even get it. So you get your wages and the government gets there first. P-A-Y-E, gone. If you're in business, it's even worse because they make you pay provisional tax. You're paying money. You're paying tax on money you haven't even earned. How on earth they get away with that is a mystery to me. And, of course, hidden in everything you buy is tax. The government reaches in and takes money off you every time you do a transaction. And so it doesn't appear even to tax a wage earner or a shopper because they know if they made it public, there would be a revolution. If you had to write a check to the government 
each year for your share of the tax take, there would be a riot. But they get your money almost invisibly with as least pain as possible, but they're still taking it and it's bullied out of you. No other way. And so when Jacinda Ardern came along and said she was going to have a kind government, I've got to say that sent a chill. Is it down my spine or up my spine? Actually, it sent a chill both ways. I found that a little terrifying because I thought she's either as, you know, Dharma as a packet of chips, thinking that, oh, I'll be kind in government as Prime Minister. No one's ever thought of that. Oh, yeah, we'll be kind. Of course, everyone tries to be kind, really, unless they're unwell. So it wasn't like other politicians haven't tried to be kind, do their best. But it was like a whole, she yeah, presented as a whole new thought. But I didn't think that she was stupid. I thought it was the most calculated, underhand, terrifying thing. It's sort of like when you're living in the Soviet Union and they call you, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo or something, not the Soviet Union, but you know what I mean, where they call it, oh, you know, the Workers' Party or the People's Party, but you know that it's a tyrant running it, but they use the words and do the opposite. So, yeah, yeah, we're the Democratic Republic of Congo, or, yeah, 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 we're the, we're the you know, socialist workers' country, whatever it is, you know what I mean. The words are wrong. And the idea that government could be kind, government can be good, it be, can be competent, it can be limited, but it can't be kind. Only people can be kind. And how ironic, or was it, that this kind government that was promised turned out to be the most tyrannical nasty government in New Zealand's entire history. Locking us down, stopping us going to funerals, stopping us from being with our loved ones when they were sick and dying, preventing us from caring for each other, and then forcing to take an experimental gene therapy. Ah, uh, we're kind. No, they were the exact opposite. And that repeated mantra of be kind, we're kind, was cover for the worst tyranny we've ever experienced in these shores. It's the same as when they said, oh, we're going to be the most open and transparent government ever. Nope. You try and get hold of documents try and find out what they've been saying and doing. Complete stonewall. Cover it up. Don't even keep data on vaccine status of people in hospital and dying. Shocking. Open and transparent, never. 
And we know through Kathy Jameson that they never shared with us the advice that they were getting on the vaccine. They weren't open and transparent about any of that. And they weren't kind. And here we have it at a personal level. Ministers bullying staff. And you know what troubles me most about this? They play the victim. The bully plays the victim. Oh, poor me, you know, I'm having a tough time. What about the staff who can't answer back, who can't stand up for themselves, who can't, like, even in an ordinary business, complain? Because it's the government, it's a minister, it's the most powerful organ in our society that you're complaining about. What about them? Not a moment's thought. The Prime Minister has never expressed concern for the officials that were being allegedly bullied. Not once. It's all about what he's going to do with the minister. The minister herself has never expressed a concern for those staff. Picture it. You could be a young person starting out in your career, so excited to be working for the government, so excited to be in the minister's office, only to be shouted at and attacked by the big boss. Not a boss in an ordinary sense of workplace, but the big, big boss, the minister. Shocking. Or imagine you're a 30-year veteran of public service. You've devoted your life to it. And you get shouted at and abused. Now, I'm not a, what's the word, shrinking violent and expressing my views. I like robust conversations. I don't like people who say, oh, you were mean to me, you were nasty to me, and go and have a cry about it in the corner. I think we have to be, learn to be more robust and resilient. But we can't tolerate bullying. And how amazing is it that the way this government presents it, our feelings have to go out for the bully, not the bullied. They just have to suffer away from scrutiny, away from being able to tell their story. That's not a kind government. That's not a kind prime minister. That's not a kind minister. That's a nasty one. This is very, very nasty government. And we knew that from the moment that Jacinda Ardern said that she was going to lead a kind government. We knew it was going to be the exact opposite. What we didn't appreciate was just how far she would go. Oh, my goodness.
What a shocking experience. I don't want kind government anymore, ladies and gentlemen. I just want a good old-fashioned, incompetent, bumbling along, foolish government, sort of like we've got used to over the years. Not one hell bent on being kind at any cost, beating us up at any cost, calling us names at any cost, all in the name of being kind and caring. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rarely Checked Radio. Please send us a text at 2057 or send us an email at inbox at rarelychecked.radio. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. To be honest, I'm not much clearer about what a smart city is. Uh, we spoke at length to Corey Gray, the CEO of the Smart Cities Commission. Um, we're going to keep pursuing this because there's something going on and we want to get to the bottom of it because if people are proposing a top-down approach and telling us we're going to live in a smart city, we want to find out what it is. We want to find out if we agree with it. We want to find out whether we want it. And I feel as though we were just scratching the surface. Oh, and wasn't it wonderful to hear from Kathy Jameson? Truly staggering to think that while that protest in February 22 was going on outside Parliament, the government was sitting on official reports saying exactly what the protesters were saying, but hiding them from us. Well, we now know what they were being advised, and we now know that the protest was right about the vaccines, was right about the mandates, and those vaccines were never safe, were never effective, and they had advice to that effect. Oh, my goodness. You're on Rarely Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text, 2057. I do want to hear from you. Send me an email, inbox at Rarely Check Radio, or inbox at radio. Oh, please do that. And I look forward to talking to you on Thursday. We'll have even more fun. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. 
what's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up.